This week, there was a big development in the investigation by Congress into the attack on the Capitol. Late on Tuesday, a federal judge rejected former President Trump's efforts to keep his presidential records from the January 6th committee in the House. That's reporter David Farenthold. And these records that he's talking about are nearly 800 pages of documents that Trump has been fighting to keep sealed. They include things like visitor and call logs from the White House. Communications from that day, sort of records of his movement, who he was talking to before and during that day. The judge on Tuesday said that those documents could be released to Congress. She ruled that for former presidents, there is a limit to executive privilege, this right to keep communications confidential. Trump's lawyers have already appealed this decision. It could go all the way up to the Supreme Court. But even if this ruling holds, David says that it's unlikely that these documents would lead to Trump facing any criminal charges for the attack on January 6th. And the way that Trump is fighting the January 6th committee is the way that he's dealing with a lot of legal challenges in his post-presidential life. To me, there's a common tactic here, which is that Trump always finds honor systems where people obey the rules because that's what you do or because they're afraid of the social consequences. And he just doesn't do it. He doesn't do what they want. And he challenges the honor system to try to come after him and force him to do what it wants. This and the way he's dealt with investigators in New York, fighting over documents, not turning over things that he was supposed to, throwing up arguments about why he shouldn't have to comply at all. Certainly, it's been a way that he's tried to delay accountability. And I think if he's counting on a political comeback, delayed accountability is denied accountability. Today, we're taking a closer look at the state of Donald Trump post-presidency. His businesses, his finances, the ongoing criminal investigations into his actions, and how all of those things could affect a potential political comeback in 2024. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, November 10th. David Farenthold has been covering the Trump family, its business interests, and its charities for a long time. And in so many ways, Trump's businesses were a huge part of his presidency. Questions about whether his properties and financial holdings presented a conflict of interest. So even after Trump left office, Dave has kept covering him. I think that we are pioneers in this way. I don't think that the Washington Post has ever, like, nobody was covering, like, Jimmy Carter's peanut farm in 1981. But uh, (laughs) that's me this year. So I wanted to talk to Dave to get a status update on all the financial and legal troubles that have been swirling around Trump for years. Because there was this narrative during his presidency that was very popular among liberals that as soon as Trump was out of office— it would be over for him. He would be heading to prison. His businesses would go bankrupt. His brand would be ruined. But that hasn't happened. So I started by asking Dave, what is going on with Trump's businesses? <laughs> Very little. Uh, the, the, what I expected was that the former president would come back and take control of his business, which had been sort of running on autopilot for the whole time that he was president. His sons had been running it, basically just trying to keep it from shrinking too much, which, you know, they had lost hotels. They had, they had, the, the businesses had shrunk. I thought Trump would take it over and reposition it because the way that it's set up now is really dependent, especially the hotels, on non-political business. And Trump has made himself a very political brand. 
What's happened has been basically just more of the same. Trump has been in Mar-a-Lago, preoccupied by politics and by this new venture that's separate from the Trump Organization, which is a, a digital venture. Meanwhile, the Trump Organization has just continued to sort of, you know, it's rebounded a little bit because the COVID pandemic pressure on hotels is easing, mm. but they haven't changed that much. They've just sort of continued to plan to shrink. The most important thing those businesses have done this year is that they've put the D.C. hotel on the block. Oh, really? Yeah. They're, they're selling it? They're selling it. They had been planning to sell it in 2019. They took it off the block in 2020 because of COVID. Now it's back on the block. And what does that tell you, the fact that, I mean, this was like the D.C. hotel, like right by the White House, was sort of considered like an extension of the White House, yes. this, this big hotel. So what does it tell you that it's going to be sold? Well, it was losing, what we know now, it was losing millions and millions of dollars during that time. And it is a beautiful hotel, but the, I think they recognize that you cannot make it in Washington, especially with an, as expensive a hotel as that is, as big of a loan as that hotel has. You can't make it on one slice of the pie. You can't make it just on Republicans. Rudy Giuliani literally set up his office in the restaurant. A bunch of other Republicans <laughs> you know, practically live there. It's not enough to make that kind of hotel at that luxury level work in Washington. You need everybody and you need embassies and you need conventions. You can't have a polarized audience and make that hotel work. So that's them admitting, okay, look, we can't make this work. Mm -hmm. But we know a lot of other people will see value in this building and this renovation we did. And maybe they'll pay us a lot of money for it. It's a beautiful building. It's an extremely beautiful building. They did a great job in the renovation. It's the kind of place that could do really well. It's got a great location, but not Trump. Well, and I think that gets to that question of... the Trump brand when it comes to business? I mean, what is your sense of whether there is still something to be gotten for the Trump family to have their name attached to all these businesses or if that has just become too much of a liability for them? In terms of brick and mortar businesses, they're into hotels, they're in office buildings, and they're into uh, golf courses. The golf courses, there is some sort of future because Trump and I'm including Mar-a-Lago, which is not a golf course, but a club. Mm. Trump goes to those places. People who golf are people who like Trump. There's not a lot of overhead in a golf course. COVID was actually sort of good for those places because golf is an activity you can do outside. I don't think the Trump golf empire, you know, it has any long-term problems. Some of the courses aren't great, but Trump can keep some golf courses. The office buildings, he's had a lot of trouble. We wrote a story a few months ago about Trump Tower and how difficult a time they've had renting office space there. And the hotel business, it just it's Trump does not have that many hotels. They've always had a structural disadvantage because, you, you know, you can get Marriott points or Hilton points or you can get your Trump card points, hmm. which you can use at three other hotels. You know, they've always had that kind of structural disadvantage being a small chain. Now they've polarized their audience. I don't see that as a long term uh, venue for the Trump organization. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Trump Hotel in D.C., if they can't make it here with that beautiful building, I don't really see how they can make it anywhere. Hmm. So I think what we will see, this is my prediction at the end of 2020, and I still think it's happening, although a little slower than I thought, is that they're going to collapse the parts of their business that aim at the general public. The idea that the Trump brand is something that brings in the general public, that commands a premium from the general public above a Hilton or a Marriott, I think that's over. And they'll shrink that part of the brand and focus on ways they can monetize politics. Hmm. They're doing that now. They have a the, the whole T-shirt and tchotchke shop online where you can buy Don Jr.'s book and a you know a MAGA hat and as well as a gold you know like eighty five dollar candle uh, that says Trump on the side. An eighty five dollar candle. I mean, I don't buy a lot of candles, so I do have, buy candles, but I don't buy candles that are eighty five dollars. The candles they have at the Trump store must they must they must be money at the bottom of them when you burn the candle because they're, they're more expensive than I would ever think a candle would be. There's that. And then there's this new digital venture that are meant to monetize Trump's fans. When you say this new digital venture, what are you talking about? 
Uh, that was a big breath. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> this is that's, that's my like. I'm about to have to explain a spec breath. I don't really know it that well anyway. So last month, Trump announced that he had this thing called Trump Media and Technology Group Corp. It's a group corp. I don't know what I don't know what the extra corp adds, but uh, <laughs> Trump Media and Technology Group Corp. Right now, it is planning to create kind of a bare bones Twitter clone, coming something called Truth Social. Like it literally mm. looks just like looks like Twitter. It'll be Wait, Twitter. You said, you said Truth Social. Truth Social. Huh. And so you, instead of posting a tweet, you're going to post the truth. Oh, that's their plan. Interesting. Right off the bat, it didn't like you know when they first announced it, people found the like beta test site and immediately hacked it and posted pictures of you know all kinds of weird stuff. But that's their plan initially is to launch a Twitter clone, and then eventually they have all plans to dominate like streaming media, hmm. to replace Amazon Web Services. I mean, they, according to them, you know they'll be the biggest company in the world in five years. I mean, to be fair, I do feel like Trump has really. I mean, he figured out Twitter, he figured out social yeah. media in a way that was incredibly effective. And if you're looking at the kinds of ventures that he has been very successful at. I think knowing how to do social media and attract a gigantic audience is pretty high on the list of what he's good at. Totally. I mean, it's so much easier to do what he did before, which was let somebody else take care of the content moderation and the coding and the back end and all that stuff. And Trump just posts the content and gets gets the attention or the money. But he can't do that on Facebook and Twitter now, obviously. So now he has to try to create his own. And I think what we've seen in like Parler and Gab and other social media networks aimed at Republicans is just it's real hard to run a social media network in a mm. way that you know there's a lot of invisible work to you and me that makes a social media network you know not be filled with porn or spam or all kinds of other weird stuff that Twitter and Facebook do and we don't even notice it. Mm. So if you're going to compete with them, you're going to have to do some of that, and that's a harder job than it sounds. But it's not impossible. He could do that. I think the immediate thing that this will be will do for him is that so this company that he created has in, announced itself and immediately announced that it was going to merge with an existing public company this is something called a SPAC basically a special purpose acquisition company somebody special purpose acquisition okay SPAC this is not created by Trump it's a mm-hmm. Wall Street creation basically it's like it looks like a public company but really it's just a pile of money you and I get together and say investors give us a bunch of money we're going to go buy some company with it but we won't tell you what company we're going to buy until later. So we take our big pile of money, call it a company, go public, sell shares in it, and then buy a private company. And then in the process of buying that private company, now the private company is public. So this, these other people, including these people based out of Miami, WeWork, got a bunch of money together to buy a company, and they've now said they want to buy Trump's company. So if that deal goes through and there's a lot of hurdles remaining, Trump would get about $300 million to fund this network. He also would, probably more important for Trump, he would get a bunch of shares in a newly public company. This company has become sort of a meme stock where even though Trump's company doesn't do anything now, doesn't have any cash flow or any really detailed plans for what's going to happen in the future, people love Trump. And so the stock price has already gone through the roof. And so if Trump gets a bunch of shares of stock in this new company, he could get a billion dollars for basically nothing. Yeah, just because if there are so many people who are so excited to invest in this company, then if he were to time it right, then he could just make a a bunch of money very quickly. Very quickly. Right in time for a potential 2024 election run. Exactly. And he wouldn't, the way that is set up, he wouldn't necessarily have to, you know, because this is Trump, the normal rules of like Wall Street don't apply. If this was me setting up a social media company, people probably want to know that it works and it was going to get audience share and advertisers before you'd start investing in it. Because it's Trump, there's a bunch of people out there who are willing to buy it sight unseen. Hmm. So he could make a lot of money even if this social media network never goes anywhere.
After the break, an update on the New York prosecutors investigating Trump and why it's more complicated than liberals had hoped. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. All right, so let's talk about Trump's legal battles. What is going on with that? And maybe let's start with what's happening in New York, because I know that there are a number of prosecutors at different levels there going after Trump. Yes. So we the, the prediction, if you as you said, for when Trump left office was, you know, he is going to be put in jail. You know, a lot of people, not me, thought that there was going to be some serious legal pressure on him. And there is, but it has gone very slowly. And so the two main investigations of him, which I think now are effectively merged, were done by the Manhattan District Attorney and the New York Attorney General, two state-level prosecutors. And now they have been investigating Trump since 2018 and 2019, but there were some disputes over Trump's taxes and other things that prevented them from getting everything they wanted until this year. And and some of it, they're still saying they don't have everything they want. Mm -hmm. We know something about that, what they have. So in June... The Manhattan DA indicted a guy named Alan Weisselberg, who is Trump's chief financial officer, as well as two Trump corporations, not people companies. They were indicted for basically tax evasion. And it was a pretty narrow scheme. I think I think a pretty solid case, but a pretty narrow scheme, which was they were hiding part of the compensation they paid to Trump executives from the IRS. And so mm-hmm. they would – some of Alan Weisselberg, the CFO's compensation, for instance, would be paid like in form of a free rental car, a free apartment, you know, trips – tuition for his kid, his grandkids. That theoretically should also have been taxed, but was but not. was not. Was not reported to the IRS. That's, a, I think, a pretty well-proven case, but it's not, well, A, we didn't really know about it at all before, and it's definitely not the sort of global thing that I think we had been expecting, given the scale and the time of the investigation mm-hmm. that had gone into it. And I'm assuming that that the one of the conclusions from that case was not like, oh, Donald Trump knew all about this and was central to evading taxes in this way. Like, that didn't really rise no, to him. Trump was not. I mean, they, there was references to, you know, Weisselberg worked with others, but there was no reference to Donald Trump. There was no, not even any sort of veiled implication that he knew about this or hmm. orchestrated it. But is there a sense that this is part of the Manhattan DA, like, building up to something that would be more sweeping that could get Trump in trouble or yes. not really? <laughs> no, the, the, I think the thought at the time was that to get somebody like Trump on a financial crime, you have to prove uh, – financial crimes like this are not like bank robbery, right? If I rob a bank and you arrest me, you don't have to prove that I knew bank robbery was wrong. Everybody knows bank robbery is wrong. Mm-hmm. But financial crimes, especially tax crimes, are complicated enough that there has to be proof that you knew what you were doing was wrong when you did it. You weren't doing this through sort of incompetence or blundering. You understood that something was wrong and you did it anyway. And that's often proven in white-collar cases through email, but Trump doesn't use email. And so the way around it that the prosecutors thought of was Weisselberg. Here's a guy who talks to Trump every day. All these decisions that he made were made at Trump's behest. He could say, I was in a room with Trump and he told me to do this thing even though he knew it was wrong. That was, I think, their theory, but so far it hasn't worked. Weisselberg has refused to flip. He has continued to remain loyal to Trump. 
he's lost some of his corporate positions at Trump, but from all from what we can see from the outside, he has not turned on Trump. So what we've seen the, the DA and the attorney general do in the last few months, sort of surprisingly, is is broaden the case, make this case much broader. Hmm. And what we've started to see them interested in is really valuations of pieces of Trump's empire all over the place. Asking, you know, when Trump went to lenders, when he talked to tax authorities, you know, when he when he was trying to, to describe his wealth or the value of his assets, did he lie about things about those assets? One example being, you know, at Trump clubs, members, when they sign up, pay an initiation fee that is like kept in a big pot of money at the club. Hmm. And Trump would tell people, well, you know, I'm a great credit risk because among my many assets, I have $40 million in accumulated initiation fees locked up at Mar-a-Lago or at the Trump Golf Club in Westchester or whatever. I can use that if I need to. Hmm. If that was a lie, if he hadn't sold as many memberships as he said, if he hadn't sold them for the amount that he said, they seem to be interested in that level of question. I see this idea that Trump could have been lying to banks about all the stuff that was happening behind the scenes at his company to make him look more attractive as the recipient of some of these huge loans. Exactly. And then at the same time, maybe doing the opposite with property tax assessors and saying, you know, look at look how poor I am, look how little I'm making, you know, you should tax me less. Hmm. Now, the, we've always heard that the problem with for prosecutors with this line of inquiry is that everybody fudges these things a little bit, right? And some things like the valuation of a property are always a little bit subjective. How much is my golf course worth? It's not like there's some one right answer out there. Everybody could debate, you know, mm-hmm. you know, gradations. So you have to show – if you're going to show that Trump was criminal in this, you have to show that he he is fudging it so far that you can't give him the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. anymore, that he has gone so far beyond the normal wiggle room that it makes it criminal. And, and how far along is that case? Is it still pretty early on in them trying to answer those questions? It seems like it, yes. I mean it, we just wrote last week that they have impaneled a new grand jury. There was a grand jury in New York that indicted Weisselberg, and I think its work is going to end this year along with the term of Cyrus Vance, who was the Manhattan DA. A new DA, Alvin Bragg, is taking over. We just learned that they are impaneling a new grand jury that will last for at least another six months, so into the term of the new DA. And it does seem from people we've talked to who are familiar with the grand jury's asking, they're asking very detailed questions, but it's all over the place. And I think what they're doing is to say when Trump made, you know, we went to Deutsche Bank to get a loan for something. He made all these representations about – detailed representations about his courses, how big they were, how many stories the buildings were, how many people were members, what those members paid. And if we can use those statements as like a roadmap to an indictment, you know, that it seems like they're trying to show this is a lie and that's a lie and this is a lie and that's a lie. And so it's not just like sort of fudging the numbers or puffing up the numbers. It's mm-hmm. a series of misstatements. I think it would have to be lying at that level for people to believe there's a criminal charge in it, but they seem to be going that broad. So what about all of the allegations that we heard in 2016 after the election in 2016 related to sexual harassment and assault around former President Trump? Is any of that still threatening him legally? Yes, there are a couple of lawsuits. There's no criminal investigation that I know of, but there are a couple of lawsuits filed by people who said Trump harassed them many years ago and then statute of limitations expired on their, those claims, but they sued him for defamation after he later denied that he did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Summer Zervos and E. Jean Carroll, both have filed lawsuits against Trump. He, while he was president, tried to sort of fight them off using presidential privilege. Obviously, that's gone now and they are proceeding. But the one thing that we've learned about the legal system this year is it goes very slow, especially in the times of COVID. So any sort of reckoning for Trump or testimony he'd have to give, trial, still seems a ways off. So given all of this, it does seem like what we're seeing now 
is pretty different from what I heard in those months leading up to the end of the Trump presidency um, about how everything was going to come crashing (laughs) down around Donald Trump as soon as he stopped being president. What do you make of that? Like, what do you make of the fact that it does seem like Trump, at least so far, has been pretty fine? I think it's two things. I think it's one that there has always been a tendency on the left to assume that Trump is one step away from shattering legal liability from, you know, that was true of Mueller. It was, it's, it's been true of, you know, all the allegations about Russia, you know, Trump supposedly getting money from Russia and about the Manhattan DA. And I think that people on the left want a moment where Trump just goes away, you know, Mm. like, you know, somebody comes and puts him in cuffs and takes him away. We don't have to think about him anymore. And I don't think that moment is ever going to come. I mean, Mm. honestly, I I feel like even if he was, if the Manhattan DA charged him with tax fraud tomorrow, you know, he would not go to jail immediately. He might not, might not ever go to jail. And certainly there would be a long period where he could fight those charges. I mean, that's just— And then even having charges against him clearly would not be disqualifying for a large percent of the population who would see something like that as like, oh, Trump has been wronged and like we'd still want to vote for him yeah. if he decided to run for president again. Yes, it's certainly, you know, I don't know what it would mean if he was literally in jail. I don't see that happening anytime soon. But, but if just being accused of something like that or even having been convicted of something— you know, I don't know if it would change people's calculus about Trump. We know a lot about Trump now and people that support Trump support him despite all the things that have happened. You know, I hear a lot from readers on the left who want there to be some sort of moment where everyone's like, oh, Trump is bad. And then Trump is just ushered off the stage, you know, he's in handcuffs or whatever. And that's, I think, partly based on a mistaken belief about what he did. You know, I think there's been a lot of allegations about things that supposedly Trump did that people have looked at and found out he didn't do. And that's a frustrating thing as somebody who covers Trump is that when I tell you things that Trump did, often they don't compare to whatever fantasy people have conjured up in their minds about what they think Trump did. So they're not they're not impressed with whatever you, you found out, even though it's true and what they believe in is false. <laughs> it's not as cool as what they imagine. Um, and then also that's just not how politics works. There's a lot of deference given legally and politically to people who were the president or are the president. He's going to be there as long as he wants. And the way for liberals to, you know, it's going to have to be a hard slog of beating him and people who support him over and over again. David Farenthold covers the Trump family and its business interests for The Post. And by the way, after we taped this segment, we went back to look at the current price of the Trump candle. It is, in fact, $100, not $85. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced and mixed by Ted Muldoon. The kind of reporting that David Farenthold does is only possible because of our subscribers. If you'd like to support him and support our podcast, head to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.